Hey everybody, what the fuck's going on? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Diff Eyewear. Diff Eyewear, um, they offer stylish, handmade sunglasses constructed with high-end materials. They're as good or better than designer sunglasses without the $200 or $300 price tags. Instead, Diff sunglasses start at just 50 bucks a pair. And the best part is... For every pair of sunglasses you buy, Diff, that's D-I-F-F, I wear, will give a pair of reading glasses to someone in need. And these are excellent glasses, and I wear them. One of the reasons I wear them, they have those old-school cop aviator ones with the mirrors. Those are fucking hard to get. It's hard to get a good quality, old-school mirrored sunglasses. God damn it. No, people don't want to look like a creeper. Not me. I relish it. I like looking like a fucking creeper with the mirrored sunglasses. Why? What is wrong? Does everybody have to know what you're looking at? You know? Why is mirror bad? You don't want to look at yourself? I like them. Anyway, excellent sunglasses. And you can get one of pretty much any color any color you like and still pay less than some designer brands. They're excellent. I really enjoy them. Very high quality. I wear them all the time. Uh, if you see me, you go, hey, man, is that diff eyewear? Probably, bitch. What's with the questions? Anyway. Do good, buy smarter, be diff. Go to diff eyewear, D I F F eyewear.com slash Rogan right now to get 15% off your purchase. That's diff eyewear.com forward slash Rogan for 15% off. Diff eyewear.com forward slash Rogan. We are also brought to you by Casper. This podcast is supported by Casper an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. And our very own young Jamie has one of these mattresses. They installed it in his house, and he fucking raves about it. He loves it. He said it is the best mattress that he's ever had, and they are shockingly, ridiculously low-priced in comparison to premium mattresses made by other brands. Why is that? Because they've done the wise thing. What they've done is they have cut out the middleman and done what so many companies are doing now. They make really high-quality stuff, and they sell it to you directly online. These mattresses are made in America, very high-quality, and they have a risk-free trial and return policy. I really like this. You don't have to worry about it. Try it for a full 100 days with free delivery to the U.S. and Canada and painless returns. What more do you want? You can't you can't go wrong there, folks. Pricing is $500 for twin-side mattresses and $950 for a king-size mattress. Now, if you go to a premium mattress store and compare those, I guarantee you, you are not going to find the same quality for anything close to that kind of price. So go try. Check it out. And look, you can't go wrong if you want to try this. You get to try it for a fucking hundred days. Come on, folks. And there's a special offer for listeners of this podcast. You can get $50 towards any mattresses by visiting www. Why do they have to put www? Everybody knows that. Casper.com forward slash Joe and using the promo code Joe at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. But again, this is an awesome mattress. It's an awesome deal. An easy return policy and an, an, an awesome guarantee. Risk-free trial and return. Casper.com forward slash Joe. Use the promo code Joe at checkout to save yourself 50 bucks. And we are also brought to you each and every episode by 
onnit.com. Go to O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word Rogan and you will save 10% off any of our amazing supplements like Alpha Brain, Shroom Tech Sport, New Mood, things that John Dudley and I talked about in this very podcast. That's who's my guest, you fucks. Onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T. Again, use the code word Rogan. Check out the Onnit Academy link because it is filled with hundreds of pages of awesome articles on exercise physiology, strength and conditioning routines, different diets, the science of nutrition. John's flexing right now in front of me. It's also an awesome gym in Austin, Texas, the actual physical Onnit Academy. Uh, great state-of-the-art workout facility with great instruction and 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu. Go to onnit.com. Get on it. You know you want to. God damn it. Get your fucking shit together and get on it. O-N-N-I-T.com. <gasps> and that's it. My guest today is my good friend, my archery guru, and uh, my hunting buddy, John motherfucking Dudley. And we are in Iowa, ladies and gentlemen. We are, uh, we're dudley in it up. And um, and we're talking. We, we, we did an impromptu podcast, so I'm uh, let you guys have it. So here we go. Without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, the great John Dudley. Joe Rogan Podcast. Check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day. Joe Rogan Podcast by night. All day. Coming at you live from Iowa. Deep, deep, deep in the Midwest. That's where we are, right? I don't know where that, <laughs> that came was from. Really, Jamaican. <laughs> it was uh, inspired by the lack of diversity in this town. <laughs> A lot of white people out here, folks. White people and corn. You know that that term, corn fed. That was created in because Iowa. of Iowa. Yeah, yeah, for sure, it was. I'm having a great time out here, John Dudley. I've been out here with my pal John Dudley and uh, getting some archery coaching and uh, doing a lot of bow hunting, and we're um, seeing a lot of deer, man. Iowa's like made out of deer and corn. Deer, corn, and beans. And white people. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) But it's awesome. (laughs) The deer out here are incredible. I mean, I've never seen so many white-tailed deer in my life, definitely. Never seen, we've, we've hunted for three days, so far unsuccessfully, but had a great time, saw a lot of deer, and today at least had a couple pretty close opportunities. Just, you know, if you don't know anything about bow hunting, you, you have to be a certain distance from the animal, you have to have a certain kind of shot. It's not like a rifle. For, with a rifle, an animal can be 300 yards away. All you need is a steady rest and a good rifle, and that's that's a dead deer. But with bow hunting, no, you know you gotta. You really ideally want to be inside of 40 yards if you're, you know, if you can. But what we're seeing is these big, giant, mature, wild, 250, 300 pound mammals that are running around here. There are these. You don't think of him that way, but when you're around them, like you're when you drive down the road, you're like, "Oh, look, there's a deer." But when you're hunting them and you make eye contact with these things, you <laughs> kind of it changes the nature of what they are to you. Like let's talk about that uh, the experience that we had. Was it on the first day or the second day? The first the day. The first day. The first day we decide we had a couple encounters, then we decided to come down off of the stand. And I decided we just we said 
one thirty or one forty. We said we we're going to stop. I yeah, I personally said one thirty, and then at one twenty five, you said, "Dude, let's bail." <laughs> so this is how that always goes. At one twenty five, we had been in the stands at six thirty in the morning. At one twenty five, I got down, and as I'm getting my stuff, we climb all the way down from this tree. John puts his thumb on either side of his head like Bullwinkle to make <laughs> the classic sign of uh, deer antlers. And this big old honking deer is coming down the way. And first, a little deer came by and got within 15 feet of me? I was going to say 10 feet. It might be 10 feet of me. I was standing by this tree. Obviously, I'm in all camo, and I'm not moving. I'm just freezing. And young deer and old deer... They might as well be a different species. Yeah, I think they are. They don't look the same. Just with the same hair. They don't look the same, and they definitely don't look at you the same. So one young deer walked by me, didn't notice me at all. He was like within easily inside of 10 feet. And then the second deer walked by. He was inside of like 25, 30 yards, walked right by me. But then this mature deer came by, and he was his color was different. And he spotted me immediately. And he looked at me with this <laughs> crazed intensity in his eyes. And it was it's so interesting because right away I go, oh, that's why people love to hunt these things. Look how smart that thing is. Yeah. It's just looking at me. I mean, he, I was frozen solid. I wasn't moving at all. And I was looking at him, and he was looking at me, and his eyes were wide like dinner plates. He knew exactly what I was. And he was like, fuck this. And he just (laughs) turned around and bolted. But it was the electricity in the air and the, the intensity of his recognition of me. It was so obvious. And I remember thinking immediately, wow, this is a really intelligent, tuned in animal that knows what a person is. They know people equals hunting. People yep. that are out danger. You know, danger. They yeah. equal danger. Where the young ones don't have any idea. I took some pictures and I'll post a picture up on uh, Instagram. We were sitting in the same stand the second day and this young deer came by and literally took a nap underneath us. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. He, not only did he not know we were there, like, he didn't give a shit. He just yeah. laid down. He was a year-old buck. His mom is out being a hoe. She's out getting gang-banged. <laughs> because it's, they're in the middle of the what they call the rut. And if you're a non-wildlife uh, uh, enthusiast, the rut is one time a year. And it's kind of a crazy thing if you think about it. One time a year, they have sex. So the entire year, everything's normal. Everybody's buddy-buddy. And then... All of a sudden, one time out of the year for how long does it last? I would say three weeks intensely. Three weeks. For three weeks, they lose their fucking minds. They lose weight. They they can't think straight. No. They run out into traffic. They get hit by cars. And they're they're literally just boner crazy. Boner crazy. They have no idea what's going on. And they they, they go bananas. Well, so, I, I sent you a text. I said these poor suckers for 340 <laughs> days a year, you can't even find one. But then all of a sudden, they go full retard. Yeah. Imagine that was the case with people. Imagine if you were like a normal person, and then one time out of the year, 
you start growing a sword at the top of your head. <laughs> and and you just get crazy. Your neck swells up yeah. as big around as your waist. I mean, for people who don't know, they lose those antlers. A lot of people don't even know that, that don't pay attention to deer. But deer grow antlers fresh every year. And then once they're done having sex and they're done with the rut, those antlers get weak and they just fall off. Which is what a bizarre metamorphosis as an animal. Actually, how horn grows is fascinating to me. It's if you, incredibly fascinating. If you, if you shoot a deer that's still in velvet, and then you're holding that velvet, and you have to, in order to preserve... Explain the, velvet. So velvet's like when it's fuzzy, like velvet, on the horn, when it's in the growing phase before it actually hardens, it's it's fuzzy, like you know, just like velvet or fleece. And um, then what happens is that'll start to, their hormones start to change and their horns start to harden and then they rub the velvet off so that it's just pure hard bone. And uh, it's really it's, interesting it's that bone, it's... bone, right? It's like a, it's, it's like fingernail type material, right? It's... I don't know, man. It's what is it harder than my fingernails. Maybe yours, bro. Yeah, well, maybe yeah, maybe bro. yours are super hard. <laughs> like, but. No, but what, you, what is it made out of? Why don't you Google it? Can you Google it? Will you yeah, have a computer in front it. of you? Yeah, we'll Google it. It is a. They, they are really fascinating animals. I mean, I'm a, a wildlife enthusiast. I've always been really into wildlife. I've always been fascinated by wolves and lions and predators and all kinds of weird birds and stuff. I've I just I've always been drawn to like nature shows and things along those lines. But it's massively intensified since I started hunting. Let's see what we have here. This says the horns of a rhinoceros are made oh. of keratin. Yeah, the that's the same stuff as fingernails. Yep, and grow continuously. Well, just Google but, antlers instead of horns. Because what are you... You're a goddamn... Yeah, what are antlers made of? It was like the second... Well... You go. You're a goddamn uh, Listen, Jamie's professional not here bow right hunter. now. You're a professional exactly. bow hunter. How the hell do you call them horns? Antlers, son. Are they antlers? Deer antlers are made of true bone that is fed by the covering of velvet. Wow, you're right. Antlers oh, are made I'm of right? true bo- Well, you're right all the time. Antlers are made of true bone that is fed by blood, which is carried to the outer velvet covering. Velvet antlers are hot to the touch with brushy hair and a waxy feeling coating. Deer need both protein and minerals to grow their antlers. And That's what I'm saying. Yeah. There's actually blood in them. If mm-hmm. you shoot a buck in velvet, you have to you actually have to inject the velvet with embalming fluid so that they don't like you know to in order to preserve them. But it's amazing that you can you have to find the vein in the horn and you push the embalming fluid through and it actually flushes and the blood comes out the base of the horn. How do you find the vein? It, there's one there's one vein that runs the entire length of the main beam, and there's one that runs from each tine. It's really strange. I shot a velvet buck in Colorado last year, and it's on my desk in my studio. And they said, how do you want to take care of it? Like when I was getting it treated, because I get all my um, the heads done, what's called European mount style. The European mount style is like if you see a mounted head on someone's wall with the 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 uh, skin and the fur on it and then they have fake eyeballs and the fake nose that's like traditionally what you see i find that offensive i know that's a it's a doll i'm looking at a doll pretending to be the deer i shot there's a foam thing under there it's got fake eyes 
I know it's fake. But if you you see the skull, like that's a real skull. A radish patch buck? That that buck is awesome. That is a <laughs> massive buck. Is that the one that you shot on your show in Colorado or in uh, Wyoming? Montana. Montana. Mm-hmm. Montana, because it wasn't lighted knocks, right? You couldn't use right. lighted knocks. Yeah. Um, so I told them, they go, what do you want to do with the, the velvet? And I said, does it scrape off? They were like offended. They're like, what? You want to scrape it off? <laughs> I was like, there's, there's antler under there, right? I go, well, do whatever you want to do. Just let me know. And they they, they do the that whole... in Europe. In Europe, it, like if um, the Danish shoot a buck, and I've had I've been on a few hunts with Danish people, and they'll shoot a buck, and if it's in full velvet, they strip it all off right away mm. because it's not like it's almost like that. I think they feel like they shot an adolescent, even though it's in a fully matured. Because by the time season opens, that velvet is. On the verge of being rubbed off, right. the horn is fully matured, but it just hasn't come off. So, but that's Denmark, right? They don't know any better. They're not. So it's, it's like they're they're barely developed. I don't know. They know Dude, quite. They're, a, just, they're barely. They're just out of the caves. <laughs> just got out of the caves like a couple of weeks ago. If you're listening from Denmark, we're kidding, folks. We've been up since six o'clock in the morning. Five, five. That's I right. I was up at four. I got up at five. Hot tubbing. Whoa, he was hot tubbing. Not with me. I'll tell you that. Well. No hot tub with dudes. I uh, <laughs> I'm <a> hot. <laughs> I got up at five, uh, but anyway, we're out the door at five thirty. So we've been up for a long time. That's the point. Right now it is uh, almost ten p.m. and we got to do it again tomorrow. Tomorrow's the last day. Of this uh, fantabulous hunt here in the great Midwest state of Iowa. Um, well, Iowa, what do you think of Iowa hunting? Awesome, amazing. What's well, a tradition here? And it's it's obvious, you know. The the when you talk to all the folks, the locals, uh, our friend Craig, who is the uh, local game warden, you know, gives us all the details on all, all that's going down. Your neighbor shot a giant. Good lord, <laughs> I know. Oh my god, he, yeah. he shot a monster, he's monster on, animal. He's on the uppity up. But, no, what I really appreciate about Iowa is they have a great program, too. And you haven't got to experience it yet because um, we haven't got to go to the meat locker. But um, Iowa has a program called the Hush. And it's pretty much um, hunters feeding the hungry is really what it is. That's a great program to where people are allowed to shoot um, extra deer tags in order to, and they can donate that to a Hunters for the Hungry program. So they actually feed, like, it goes to homeless shelters and things like that. And it's a necessity, like I told you. In my county here, I believe the number of antlerless deer that have to be taken is like 4,200 extra tags. And Just you've to keep seen, the population balanced. Right. Well, you, you've seen how many how many times have we had to slow the truck down to not hit a deer, and you've been here three days. Quite a few. Quite a few. The The sheer population numbers are, are pretty incredible. And one of the reasons for it is that they've done a really good job of making sure there's not overhunting. Um, they also regulate the type of hunting you can do where mostly it's bow hunting in Iowa. Uh-huh. But you can shotgun hunt, but you can only shotgun hunt for a few days a year. And by the way, I'd rather have a bow than a shotgun. You can make a longer shot with a bow than you can with a shotgun, and a more efficient shot with a bow than you can with a shotgun. It's, um, I just feel like you get to enjoy more of nature. 
don't as blow a your hunter. ears out either. Yeah, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> That's an inside joke. There's a lot of people with blown ears from guns, folks. It's, Mine are ringing right now. Yeah, it's cams ring all the time, too. They uh, do? Yep, yep. I know a lot of guys who have been hunters their whole life who have really bad ear problems. Ranella has ear problems. Is he is Cam as deaf as I am? Uh, not quite as deaf as you are, but he's got ringing problems. He's got issues. Yeah. And it's, again, from shooting firearms when he's young without ear protection. I wear ear protection every time I fire a gun. Every time. That's smart. Yeah, yeah mine ringing. I, I was never told otherwise. Except this last time I shot that elk. I shot that elk with no ear protection. But uh, Were they ringing then? No. Just two, one shot. You're too tough for to for your ears to ring. That's very kind of you, but not true. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody have tough ears? No, yeah, bro, my ears are tough. Go ahead, scream in my ears, bro. I don't know. I've I seen tighten some, them up. I've seen some cauliflower ear yeah. in the UFC. There's no, That's there's no sound penetrating those suckers. Yeah, well, it's not good sound. <laughs> I, you know, people always ask me why I don't have cauliflower ears. I wear ear guards. I've always worn ear guards. For 20 years, I wear ear guards. I have a little tiny bit of cauliflower ear. Like, you can feel it here. What, what cauliflower is, if you don't know, is um, when your ears get bent over or broken. It doesn't have to happen from wrestling. It can happen. Sometimes boxers get it. You can get it if somebody hits your ear. Uh, if something hits your ear, what it is is basically just bleeding. And when it swells up with blood, when blood sits there and pools up, when it heals, it calcifies. And so it literally becomes a rock. Yep. Like Randy Couture used to drive his cauliflower ear into his opponent's eyeballs. Because it's like a rock. So he's <laughs> he's taking guys down and like he's clinching with them and he's shoving his ear into their <laughs> eye socket and, and using it as a weapon to drive them down. But good luck getting some fucking iPod earbuds into those things, man. You can't That's not happening. You can't hear good either. Like take your ears, folks, if you're listening at home, take your ears and then Take the top and do this. Fold them down like that. And then hear how different everything sounds. And then let them go. Your ears designed a very specific way. And that way is to catch the sound waves. The sound waves come in. It resonates off of the shape of your ear. And it goes into the hole. These guys that I know, I know a ton of guys whose ears are so fucked up they can't get earbuds in. They have to wear over-the-ear <laughs> earbuds. Oh, it's super yeah, common. You're it's not really, getting, really common. It's probably why they always have the big over-the-ear beats by Dre. Yeah. Just so they can... Sponsors. Oh, okay. Sponsor yeah, stuff. They sponsor the UFC. Okay. But, yeah, but they it's hard for them to get earbuds in. They, they, they don't, they're not going to fit. They're not getting an earbud in I don't know how we got into earbuds. Well, we started with Iowa. Where? How do we go with this? <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But, we saw Caitlyn Jenner's nipple. Oh. <sighs> Things can't unsee for a hundred. Right I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna spin this thing right around. Alex, <laughs> I'm gonna go with things you can't unsee. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, they're big. Caitlyn has big boobs. I want to. I want to point out the political correctness of all the people in your hunting camp because everybody referred to her as a she. Yeah. She really. I like, I- Oh, well, I, I didn't. Um, no, we have a one of my buddies came and one of his buddies played call, played golf. Yeah, did a charity outing and then had a picture. Mm. And it was um, they were surprised that there was such a 
transformation. There's a surprise. Surprise! Yep. There was a lot going on. Well, what do you think about this fight card? Got a fox fight tomorrow night. Yeah, we're going to come back and watch the fights after I kill a monster buck. It's on the books, folks. It's in the cards. I'm making a prediction. Uh, it's a big fight. The, the main event is huge. It's Rafael Dos Anjos, who's the former UFC lightweight champ, versus Tony Ferguson, who is undoubtedly, without question, one of the best lightweights in the world. And a guy who's been knocking on the door to a title shot for a while. It's a really interesting fight because it highlights a real issue with MMA right now. Uh, and that issue is weight cutting. Rafael Dos Anjos had a terrible weight cut for the Eddie Alvarez fight. I'm hearing a lot of like conflicting stories, but all of them really bad. Now, I shouldn't say conflicting. I should say uh, different stories, but of what went on when he was making weight for his fight with Eddie Alvarez. And apparently he was in bad shape, like really bad shape, like barely made weight for that and was, you know, just really in physical discomfort and pain and just all screwed up from that weight cut. I think weight cutting is one of the worst aspects of fighting. I think it might be worse than the beatings these guys take. We don't see it visually. We don't see cuts in their face. We don't see knockouts. We don't see blood when they're cutting weight. So we don't think of it as the same kind of damage that we do from a beating. But I think it might be as bad, if not worse. I would say worse. It could very well be. And then even more worse is the fact these guys are dehydrating themselves literally to death's door and then fighting. Train killers 24 hours later. Yeah, It's unavoidable. It's unnecessary. I mean, it's not unavoidable. It's avoidable, it's unnecessary, and it's foolish. I think it's a, it's one of the most foolish aspects of the, for, the sport. And, you know, we were talking today uh, with some of the guys at your camp about, um, like, issues with MMA and what the new owners are going to do uh, now that the UFC has been purchased. And I hope they institute a program to eliminate weight cutting. I think it is one of the biggest problems and biggest... It's a time bomb, and it's just waiting to go off in everybody's face. Yep. And a guy like Rafael Dos Anjos, who's a, one of the elite of the elite, before he lost to Eddie Alvarez, a lot of people, including me, were making the argument that he might be the best lightweight ever. You look at he knocked out Benson Henderson. He beat the shit out of Nate Diaz. He knocked out Cowboy Cerrone in one round. He's a fucking monster. I mean, he's a killer. He beat the shit out of Anthony Pettis for five rounds to win the title. Just rolled him over. Just beat him down. Uh, you can make the argument he's one of the greatest, certainly one of the greatest lightweights of all time. Might be the best in terms of like champions. And the guy was so depleted from his weight cut that he was like, I'd heard he was passing out backstage. You know, I just, I just, if that guy died, let's imagine. I mean, God forbid, right? But let's imagine if a guy like that dies because of a weight cut. And it has happened. The last weight, the last death in MMA was in Brazil, and it was from a fighter who cut weight. He died from weight cutting. He didn't die from the fight itself. I just, I think it's a terrible thing that can be eliminated. And I think that if we did, you would see better fights. I that's really what I'm saying. Yeah, I think. How, I mean, someone like that that's having to cut that much. Mm-hmm. Are they really? Are you really seeing them at their best? You absolutely are not. There's no question about it. See, I think Cowboy looks way better when he's when he's fighting heavier. Much better. Look how good he looks at 170. I think that's it. He was always he's always been an elite fighter, even at 55. But at 170, he looks like a world champion. Exactly. 
Yeah, I'm waiting to see a title contention right there that weight. I think it's an old thing. It's well, we were talking today be... about Cyborg. Yeah. Because you yeah. were telling me what she walks around at. 175. Yeah. She's it's like way how too big. and I said, Well, as jacked as she is, how does she how does she cut that much? I mean, that seems like an impossibility. She does it. It's sheer strength of will. George Lockhart, who's her coach, who's a, a, a really, really high level um, nutritionist and, and weight cutting expert, and he gets her down to that weight. But it's not pretty. You know, there's a video of her struggling to make 140. The the weight classes in the UFC for women, as of right now, there's only two. There is uh, 115, and then there's 135. And they've experimented with 125. They talked about doing 125-pound weight classes, um, like a title at 125. But as of yet, it doesn't exist. Um, but I think honestly, Cyborg has said that really her best weight class isn't even 45, which she's a champion of in Invicta. Her best weight class would be 55. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, and there's other girls out there, man. Build it, and they will come. You know, I think That's 55 I think. would be a really good women's class because you'd almost you'd almost have that like Mark Hunt, Brock Lesnar style. You'd get some real just powerhouses in there that are still not too big where they're mm. out of shape but right. they could just i mean they could be like cyborg i think if you built it you'd have people coming from other countries that you probably don't even know about i think you, i think you certainly would after a few years and that's just an investment that i think they have to make with women's mma right now women's mma is where men's mma was when the ufc was first purchased cuz a lot of people don't realize but when the ufc bought that when they purchased it from the old owners, they eliminated the 155-pound weight class because uh, they used to have a 155, then they had a 170, and then they had, uh, I think they had a middleweight and a light heavyweight and a heavyweight still. But they didn't have anything lower than 170. So a lot of guys either left the UFC to fight in other organizations or they moved up to 170 and competed at 170. And some guys were like really oversized or undersized for that weight class. So I, that's not enough, obviously. I mean, the, the, it's really important that for a guy like Mighty Mouse, like if there wasn't a 125-pound weight class, which where Mighty Mouse competes, we wouldn't be able to see the yeah. best fighter of all time compete in his perfect weight class. Or 135. You know, you wouldn't be able to see Dominic Cruz compete at his optimal weight class. 145. You wouldn't be able to see Jose Aldo go on that reign of terror for all those years. You wouldn't be able to see Conor McGregor uh, fight at 145 and beat Aldo. And then 55, 55 for the long time. 55, which is one of the most competitive and talent-rich divisions in the UFC, didn't even exist. And, you know, so I think that the UFC, if they really want to make that commitment for women's MMA, they should have a full range of weight classes for those girls to compete at. I think they should start maybe even lower than 115. I mean, you could you could make a real strong argument for a 105-pound women's class, a 105, a 115, a 125. And then I think really the trend of those 10-pound per weight class, that should exist in the men's division as well. There's too big the, – the gaps in the men's divisions are way too big. There's 170, and then there's 15 pounds higher, 185. That's a big jump. And then there's 20 pounds above that, 85 to 205, 20 pounds. Think about taking 20 16-ounce T-bone steaks. <laughs> And that's how much bigger that guy is than the yeah. guy before him. Then you go 205 to 265. 
So think about taking 60 T-bone steaks. Yeah. Six zero and stacking them up. Thinking about all the horsepower that comes with all that weight. It's just, there's too, the, the gaps are too large. Yeah. There's too few weight classes. So I think the UFC would be, it would be very smart for them to make more weight classes, do a weight class every 10 pounds, and eliminate the weight cutting if they could. And I think it can be done. They're they're probably going to have to get rid of some champions though, not get rid of, but they're going to have to re they're going to have to move people around. around. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and the people who are champions, yeah, they're not going to want to do that. You know, you're not going to be able to. It's going to be a hard fight to tell a guy like Dominic Cruz he can't cut weight. You know, when he's the the world champion, you say, look, man, what do you weigh? You weigh one fifty five. You're going to have to fight at one fifty five. Yeah. What? It'd be interesting though to see how much better fights we'd see. Yeah. If people were I mean there's obviously going to be a position where people are getting in good shape because there's a lot of fighters now that the testing's happening to where that when they come out you can tell they're not as noticeably good shape as what they were at one time. They're not as jacked. Yeah, they're, they're not, not as, as muscular. Jacked. Yeah. Yep. And it see it kind of seems like maybe we aren't getting the same class of fighting. At times, with some but, guys, with some, uh, yeah, with some guys, but, but the best guys, I don't think that's the case. Guys like Mighty Mouse, I mean, you know, he's still the elite of the elite. You know, you go down to fifty-five, Eddie Alvarez looks sensational at fifty-five, and you know he has no issues with it. He looks just as good uh, after the USADA uh, testing as he ever did. Look at Tyron Woodley, passes like a flying color, and if anybody. Looks like they're some sort of a, a science project. It's Tyron Woodley. He's like the best built guy in the UFC. Clean as a whistle. Just awesome genetics and hard training. You know, and then you, you go up to a 185. Yoel Romero is the king of the freaks. And he's the freakiest freak that ever freaked. <laughs> I mean, that guy is, if that guy's not on steroids, you just go, what the f-? Well, you know, some people just have amazing genetics. Yeah, those people, they're walking around at their weight they should be in. Yeah. I think that would help the whole sport. If they could figure out how to do that, if they could figure out how to eliminate the weight cutting and do it smart and do it over you know, a, a period of time and figure out a way to establish new champions and new divisions and, and give guys financial incentives in, to do this and just let them know for your own good, for everybody's good. There's nothing wrong with being lean if you want to lose body fat. And you know, and drop down some weight in a natural, healthy way. But this dehydration shit has got to stop. Yeah, it's a time bomb. It's a ticking time bomb, and it's waiting to blow up in the face of the most exciting sport in the world. And I just think it's it's totally avoidable. And if you're uh, if you're training the way these guys are training, you're losing your excess mm-hmm. fat anyway. Well, you're also well if you're eating right. Unfortunately, some guys like look at uh, you know, look at uh. Uh, big country. Roy Nelson trains like a madman, but he eats like shit. <laughs> He's, you know, unfortunately, he eats like a madman too. You know, and you can't say that it's just training because Roy's not out of shape. I mean, that sounds crazy to say when you look at him, but he's not out of shape. I mean, if you if you underestimated his cardio, and you go, man, I'm gonna have to train for this guy. That guy will beat your ass. <laughs> you know, he's in real good shape. But he just got—he just carries too much excess body fat. It's well, Aubrey's always talking about how Cowboy likes his candy. Yeah, but he stopped that. He did. Yeah, he did say that. Well, once he started getting into on it, 
he started getting into audit supplements and he started listening to uh, real nutritionists and he just completely altered his diet and for the first time in his life started supplementing and you know taking to get that off no, I got it man I'm taking off these boots wear these goddamn boots all day we haven't done almost we have done almost nothing but yet I'm exhausted that's the the irony of this this whitetail hunting he's sitting a tree stand all day waiting well, for mental. deer it's totally a mental game it is it is i and told you going in it's mental and it's completely uh for a guy like me takes me completely out of my comfort zone <laughs> i actually took video of you um on the second morning we were about two hours in and i could tell joe was just like this is bull crap because he's like, wait, we're going to sit here 13 hours? <laughs> um, he was, you did a, you did like, you were doing twisties. You were like going side to side, like twisting. Then you were doing some squat thrusts. You were like kind of like doing like quarter squats. <laughs> then you ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Then you like drank your coffee. Then you took a leak. And that was all in the first hour and a half. <laughs> Just trying to get amped up, bro. I'm prepared, bro. I was like, okay. I'll make sure when it goes down. <laughs> That's the other thing too. It's like you there's all this time. I mean, think about all the time you, you practice archery. You know, I practice archery. I try to practice four days a week. If I don't practice four days a week, I get upset with myself. I'd like to practice every day, but sometimes that doesn't work out. But I can usually get in at least an hour or so, four days a week. So that's all these weeks and weeks and weeks of practice. And some days, I mean, if I don't have shit to do, I'll practice three or four hours, yep. you know? And so I'm just shooting arrow after arrow after arrow, waiting for one moment where an animal turns broadside. It's like, it's, it's almost like... It's not as crazy as a fight because there's no physical consequences to me, but it's more crazy in some ways because literally it depends on one execution of one move. Yep. The one execution, the release of a perfect arrow, and the concentration and the focus has to be perfect, and you have to launch that arrow whoosh, right through the vitals of a wild animal that has no idea you're alive. It doesn't even know you're there. Until that arrow gets launched. And that, that to me is one of the most exciting things about archery. One of the most exciting things about it is how much it really does get you out of your comfort zone. How much it's so different than anything else you do. Because like a fight, a fight is more dangerous for you. There's more physical consequences. It's more nerve-wracking. It's scarier. And, but you got some time. Like they shut that gate. And, you know, they say, are you ready? Are you ready? Let's get it on. Come on. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> you get knocked out quick, you know, and some that definitely happens. But most of the time, especially if you're good and you, you fight intelligently, you're moving around and you're avoiding trouble. You're trying to solve the problem. And, you know, it's up to your conditioning and your training to experience this thing and to try to get through it. So if it all goes well... You've gone through a three-round or a five-round fight. So longest case scenario for a championship round or a main event, 25 minutes. So in 25 minutes, you have enough time to figure out how to get it done and solve the, the riddle and the puzzle that your opponent presents. In bow hunting, you have one execution. 
Yeah. So months and months and months and months. Say, for a tag in Iowa, super hard to get. For most people, you put in, you might get one every five years. And when yep. a tag, for people who don't know anything about hunting, the way they keep the populations healthy is they regulate the amount of people that can hunt. So they have a limited amount of people that are allowed to hunt in the great state of Iowa. You get a tag every five years, and when you get that tag, do you have as many days as you have off of work that you can make it out here to get it done? Yep. There's a tremendous amount of pressure, and you have one deer tag. It all boils down to one shot on one wild animal. A lot of tension there. A lot of shit going on. That's like a. I mean, that's like saying you're going to be in a fight, but we're only going to give you one punch. Yeah. Each of you get gets one, and we'll see who wins. Sort of, but you're not going to get hit, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you're punching them with a, a an Easton Full Metal Jacket, you know, arrow going. I don't know how many feet. Probably two hundred and ninety feet a second. No, probably somewhere around I mean, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, you'd be equivalent to a a hundred mile an hour fastball, I think. Yeah, hundred mile an hour fastball with razor blades at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's really what it is. But as I'd a, probably watch the World Series if if that's what they were chucking. <laughs> <laughs> but as a discipline. It's um there is more to it than just the pursuit of an animal. There's a bunch of shit going on and I know people get tired of me talking about hunting sometimes and they you know, some people who are like animal lovers or vegetarians or something get really angry and they don't even like these podcasts. But I, I just try I'm just trying to relay what's going on in my mind, in my thought process, that this is like a it's like a meditation, like a discipline. And this incredibly difficult task, through it, you're um, you're trying to you're trying to like find the, the layers of the onion. You're trying to deep dig deep into the heart of the thing to find out what it really is. It, it reveals itself to you. Even archery reveals itself to you through the intense pressure of bow hunting, because there's like archery when there's a target. And you're 20 yards away from it, and you draw back and try to hit the X. You know, there's a little bit of pressure. And then you move the sight back to 40 yards. Then there's a little bit more pressure. And then you move it back to 80 yards. Whew, that's a long way. Yeah. Okay, i got to concentrate. Then, after all these arrows, then there's an animal. And then there's an animal, and it's moving. And it's walking, and what you have to do is wait to the moment where that thing stops. And there's tremendous pressure, and there's tremendous responsibility, and there's tremendous consequences. The last thing you want to do is see that arrow fly and hit that deer in the dick and have that thing <laughs> run off screaming. And you're like, no! And you realize not only did you not kill it, you maimed it. It's probably going to live. Yeah. It's going to be in pain for months. Yeah, you don't want that on your no, conscience. No, you don't want that. So you have this massive requirement and massive responsibility of you. And through the intense pressure of this discipline, archery reveals itself. It reveals itself. It is a martial art, you know. And I know people don't look at it as a martial art because you're not throwing kicks and you're not choking people. But archery was developed initially for war. And that's one of the fascinating things about it is is developed as a weapon both to hunt and to kill other people. And that's really what it was intended for. Yeah, it's definitely a, one of the most advanced penetrating 
because armor came about, right? Yeah. And in the, and the an arrow as a projectile is extremely efficient at penetration. Yes. Because it's it's heavy mass with a very defined point that of impact of yeah. impact, and it. I mean it. It. I told you about some t- um, a time where I did some work with Oakley on a ballistic helmet that they were doing for one of our military teams, and they brought me over because at the time I was at the um, the U.S. Archery Training Center in Chula Vista, so I went over to Oakley. And they had me shooting these these masks that they had developed because they were saying they wanted to know whether or not an arrow could penetrate them. And they were confident that these things were going to work because they said it stops shotguns, it stops 9 millimeters. They were, like, dropping these, like, I don't know, these, like, big steel staffs on them and everything was working. But when I looked at it, I said... I'm going to punch right through that thing. And they put them on um, on crash dummy heads. And I shot them out in the Oakley parking lot at 100 yards. And I, I mean, dude, every one of those things were dead meat. There was arrow <laughs> hanging out both ends. I probably have pictures on my what, computer. Uh, what pound weight were you pulling? Um, it was my target bow. I was only pulling 60. Wow. And I told him, I said, there's so much energy being generated to the front of this tip. I said, even though this is made to block stuff that flattens, because like a bullet will flatten. So um, it disperses its energy out. And, you know, obviously you absorb a lot of that shock. If you get hit with a bullet and it flattens, that energy gets, you know, it gets connected into you. You and, bruise. Yeah, and you, I mean, yeah. it's shell, it's ribs. shock. Yeah. Whereas with an arrow, it would just cut through, you know, unless it hits solid mass, it would cut through and go out, and you wouldn't even know it. It's, it's just like when you cut yourself with a knife, and you're like, oh, crap. You know, and you kind of grab it. You know it's bad, but you don't really want to look. Whereas if you shot yourself in the finger with a gun... I mean, you you know your whole hand would have felt it, right? Right. It's not like it's going to just feel yeah. like a paper cut. That and that's really the difference. Well, especially when you consider the fact that you're shooting a, a light arrow through a a target bow. Like if you were using your hunting setup and a heavy arrow with oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> He shot right through that thing. I went through its eye out the back of the head. That's so funny that they I pulled thought- it out. And they then I signed. That that would... I signed a couple. I did some glasses too, but I signed. You're dead. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, that's funny that they thought it would be fine. Well, see the penetration. Yeah, that's not good. They wouldn't let me show the helmets because they were using. Wow, them that went a foot plus deep. Kind of looks like Quay Glita. Uh, it looks like Quay Guida and Uriah Faber had a baby. <laughs> it did. It does. <laughs> I wish I remembered his name. <laughs> Look at Dudley looking all young and dapper. I was. Mm. So, no and hair. Th- that bow is you know not as powerful as your main bow, your hunting bow. Uh-uh. Which is, and the arrows aren't as heavy, and the heavier arrows get more. And you're using a field tip, too. 
right? Yeah, yeah. So you don't even have like a cutting yeah, tip on the front no. of the arrow. I mean, you think back in medieval times, man, they were cutting through chainmail with arrows. That's what, I mean, that's why that's what they were designed for. Have you ever seen those I wanted to ask you this before and I always forget. Have you um you ever used one of those Mongol thumb rings? The Mongols had a very peculiar way of releasing their uh, archery, um, their their arrows. The way they would use the the release on the bow, they had a ring like a fat piece of bone that would fit around their thumb, and they would hook with the thumb on the string. And this was how they would hold it. They would hold it like this, like almost like they were shooting pool. Yeah. So they reach over. I've seen them do it, but I didn't know they had a ring. So most people they think of like Robin Hood style of pulling back a recur- recurve, where you would grab it with your fingers and pull it back with your fingers but what they would do is that thumb ring comes out and they wrap that around and if you go back to that picture that you had earlier you can see that picture right there see that is where the 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 cord the the drawstring yeah hits on that and the thumb goes through that loop and then they wrap their finger around it so that is what holds on that seems to me to be a way better way than holding it with your fingers like this and just letting go with your fingers. It seems like it would be more repeatable and also that hard surface. Yeah. Would the probably... less fingers you have, mm-hmm. the more repeatable it'll be. That's this guy's right got there. a spoon. He's using it looks like he's using a spoon. He went metal. Some people don't like to mess around with He's metal. Could be titanium. Yeah. Could have melted down his his first love's necklace and just went crazy. Could have taken a cock ring and just stretched out part of it. I think that is for sure. That's a cock ring. It is. Um, but they used to the Mongols used to use bone. There's like a whole series of them right there. It's pretty badass. I haven't seen any other people I'm, that have done this before. And this is something that I uh, I got into after I listened to the hardcore history series on the Mongols. I really got super fascinated about them and their archery methods. They, according to Dan Carlin, at least, and he's done pretty extensive research, their bows were 160-pound pole recurves. Yeah, they were tremendous. But they would have to be because they weren't near as efficient then. So right. they would have to be in order to generate the... the I end. believe they invented the recurve, actually. I'm pretty sure. The Mongols did? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were at least the first adopters. They might have invented it. Well, let's let's Google that shit. Who invented the recurve bow? What do you think? Take a guess. Um, You're an archery fanatic. Who invented the recurve bow? I would have to say it's either going to be them or... I think it's the Mongols. I might have made that up, though. Let's see. And the survey Boom. says... Who invented the recurve bow? Recurve bow. I was going to say the Greeks. See? Is that what it says? The Greeks? <clears throat> second millennia BC. Wow. The recurve bow spread to Egypt, much of Asia in the second millennium BC. Okay, so I'm definitely wrong. Because the Mongols were, when, you know, during the Genghis Khan days at least, that was 1200. Um, so go to that Mongol bow in Wik- Wikipedia. It's a type of recurve this composite one? bow. Look at that. They, they had a specific type of bow, a recurved composite bow. It can be two types of bow. From the 17th century onward, most of traditional bows in Mongolia were replaced with a similar Manchu bow, which is primarily uh, distinguished by larger... What's that word? 
Sias, S-I-Y-A-H. In the presence H? of prominent string bridges. Hmm. The old Mongolian bows were used during the rule of Genghis Khan were smaller than the modern Manchu-derived weapons used by most Nadam, N-A-A-D-A-M, paintings as well as at least one surviving example of a 13th century Mongol bow. Dude, I want that. Imagine having a 13th century Mongol bow. That would be the shit. I know. I've shot one before. Have you really? Yeah, I wanted to always shoot one off horseback, but I wasn't <laughs> able to to do it. I did um I'll try to find a trying to find a picture here for you, but I I was presented one as a gift. I don't Whoa. know where I've got it, but I've got one here. I've got a Mongol bow that no, I was kidding. given as a gift. And I and they said, Well traditionally these were always shot off horseback, that's why they're short. Oh, that makes sense. That's why they're short, so that you can do it. So I ended up, um, I was on one of my coaching tours through Europe. So the guy that was actually escorting me, his name was Andre, I actually got on his back. And I mean, I made him act like, like a horse. Like a horse. That's ridiculous. You're a big guy. Yeah. And he's about 65. No. Yeah. You were riding a 65-pound man? Riding him like sea biscuit, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you have a picture of that? I'm going to find I it. I need to see a picture of you riding an old man. You might have killed him. That's not fair. What do you weigh? you got to weigh at least 240 pounds. I'm up there. Yeah, I'm up there. How tall are you? Um, 230 right now. Tall? Yeah. Oh, tall? 6'5". Yeah, you're a big motherfucker to be riding a 65-year-old man. I don't think any 65-year-old men should be carrying around six-foot-five dudes. That's just me, though. I know. Well, he was taking one for the team. <sighs> That's gotta... one that might break his back. <laughs> I know. I don't want to take that one. I've got I've got the picture somewhere, but I'll have to post it later. Um, so it. the Mongols, according to Dan Carlin, they had developed timing where they would release the bow as the horse was in the air so that it didn't disturb them with the bouncing. So well, boom, that totally boom, makes boom, sense. Boom. So as the the horse was in the air, that's when they would release. That would, yeah. I think I would have figured that part out, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Your archery's come sense. a long way, man. Because of you, my friend. Because of you. Well, I wasn't saying it for that reason, but, but that I'm is why. thoroughly impressed. You're a... Uh, you were a perfect protege because you applied everything taught. I, what I think so cool about archery is that people of any age can do it. Mm-hmm. Any age, any type of stature. We're going through. I got to show you some of these pictures. I wish. Is it you riding a man? Well, there will be a picture of me. Is this like just coaching pictures? Yeah, yeah, just thousands. But now that I'm going through them, I'm like remembering some of these people that I had to work with. Well, (laughs) people wouldn't even know why to laugh at that. One of the things about archery, um, you know, obviously bow hunting, I think, is like one of the most extreme uh, expressions of it. But I had no idea before I started practicing it how deep the rabbit hole goes. And I think that's the case with a lot of things. I think that's probably the case with most disciplines, most things that people do that are really difficult. I think that's certainly probably the case with golf and some other things that I've never tried. But with archery, I just I can't believe 
how much effort is involved in it. And I saw I posted something about it on Instagram once about how rewarding it is to, and how difficult it is and how humbling it is and you keep practicing and and oh, this is you on this man that's hilarious. This is horrible. How's my form? It looks excellent considering that you're crippling someone. <laughs> <laughs> we have to post that on Instagram. Save that and post that tonight so we'll have a link to All this. All right. Um, oh, that's another thing I want to ask you about. I'm sure you've seen this guy. His name is Lars Anderson. Yeah, I've seen him. Yeah, and he's got this method where he holds arrows in between his fingers of the hand he's drawing the bow back with. John's shaking his head right now. I've got to call bull crap on that. Really? Yeah. Well, how are you calling bull crap? I think part of it was somewhat believable and mm-hmm. why they held the arrows the way they did so they could load and shoot faster. Yeah. But and I mean there's no doubt if you would want him on your team cuz he has obviously perfected that technique. Yeah. But it's not like historically there's facts and stories around of people that had that type of skill. You know, there are ancient photos or ancient drawings rather of, of yeah, people of them, carrying the arrows that way. I would yeah, I would definitely say they carry it that way. Because you could load it. Mm-hmm. But his method of like shooting and his trick style of shooting, I don't know if people would become that proficient with it. I do. I think they would be. I mean if that's what you did I mean, think about the Mongols and the fact that they used that weapon so efficiently to dominate massive chunks of the world. And and this is a conversation we were having earlier today. Yeah, that was fascinating. About about, uh, the the New York Times article that said that during Genghis Khan's day, they killed so many people, it changed the carbon footprint of the world. They killed 10% of the human population on Earth. 10% 10% were directly connected to the Mongols. The Mongols had killed 10% of the earth. That just, when you hear that, it just makes you think, how could that be done? How's that done? The, the numbers, the conservative numbers, are somewhere around 20 million. The liberal estimates go as high as 70. That's, I mean, it, it is an unreal number. It's unreal. But they were... Arguably, madmen. Madmen. Hundred percent. I mean, hundred percent. It was crazy times. That's yeah. what we'd go to if all of a sudden everyone's cell phone shut off and like the sun <laughs> stopped. Well, if one group came along that was that ruthless, they're willing to take it that far. I mean, life in twelve hundred was just particularly ruthless, right? I mean, it was a brutal time to be alive. There was no medicine, there's no surgery, there's very little at least, very little sophistication. And these people, most of them lived in felt tents. I mean, that's what most of the Mongols lived in. I mean, that's part of the name Genghis Khan and the, uh, the, 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 like his, his uh, doctrine that he lived by was that he was the ruler of all who lived in felt tents. And he believed that people who lived in tents were superior to people that lived in homes. And those people that lived in homes, they sort of dehumanized them. They thought they were like, they were pieces of shit living in a house. Fuck these people. They can't even live in a tent, like a civilized person. (laughs) And 
you know, they they were they were really crazy. I, I always r- encourage people to do this, but please, if you're listening to this and this is an at all intriguing, go to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Apparently, now if you go on iTunes, you have to pay for the Wrath of the Cons ones because the way Dan Carlin's works, and it's only a dollar a show, by the way, folks, and it's worth way more than that. And you say, oh, I'm not paying for a podcast. It's not really a podcast. This is a podcast. John and I, we hunted all day. We had some dinner. We had a couple of drinks. And we said, we got to do this podcast. So we sat down. We're just shooting the shit. What Dan Carlin does is exhaustive research. And he works on these things for months at a time. And they're essentially like hour and a half hardcore history is the name of it. But that is what it is. It's a hardcore historical audio book on whatever subject he covers and all of them are equally amazing and he the the hardcore history series on wrath of the cons is a five-part series it's one of my most cherished audio recordings it's fucking incredible i've listened to it no bullshit maybe 30 times i I just keep listening to it over and over again just to absorb all the details because it's so crazy these the way these people lived it is fascinating it's worth a bucket show folks pay for it it's not like my show (laughs) <laughs> if my show was a dollar show, go on BitTorrent and steal that fucking thing. <laughs> this, this pay for it. Pay for this because it's, it's a, a work of art. But, um, but archery, uh, until modern times, consisted of the, you know, the, the sophisticated leaps in technology were just like the recurve bow and more efficient and better recurve bow, bows and better materials. Until the compound bow came along, which was when? I don't know. I'm trying to think when it was. I'm oh, going to guess. 70. Fred Bear invented it, didn't he? I think it was the Allen. Oh, was it? Okay, who invented the combat the combat bow? Who invented the compound bow? First compound bow. Let's find out. I'm not a historian. How dare you not be a historian? I just shoot. All right, let's see. What does it say here? Wilbur Oprah's Allen. Oprah's crying. Why is Oprah crying? Oprah's crying. Oh, shocking. shocking. Oprah, secrets revealed. Oh, okay. Wilbur Allen real. changed the face of archery forever when he decided that he'd make a bow by sawing off part of the limbs of a recurve and attaching pulleys. Ah. 1960s. Okay. Yeah. Why do I think it was Fred Bear? I think I watched some bear archery propaganda. That's why. Dang it all. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Holess, H-O-L-L-E-S-S. Wilbur Allen. Hmm. Yep. And that was in the 1960s. That's interesting because that looks like a modern day elite bow. (laughs) Inside joke, folks. Just kidding. If you're an elite shooter and you're like, what the fuck? You don't know shit about archery. You're right. I don't. I'm just joking. Yeah, we're Googling stuff. Don't get get so uppity. Don't get so attached to your shit, goddammit. So 1960s is when it became what it is now. Or the beginning of what it is now. But what we're shooting with 1966. is 1966. Aha. Right before I was born. What we're shooting with now is these new Hoyt, Hoyt Pro Defiance. Um, and uh, this one that I got literally three days ago is the best ball I've ever shot. It's amazing. It's so good. It feels so good when you when you shoot with it. It's so smooth and it's so accurate. It's It's incredible how far the technology has come. I mean, we're shooting today out to 80 yards, and I shot the day before that 85 yards, 
and regularly placing it in the ten ring mm-hmm. at eighty yards. Yeah, I mean that is that's an incredible sophistication and technology. And there. you're shooting eighty four pounds. Yeah, it's heavy with a five hundred grain arrow. It's, I mean, that is shit's gonna die. Ballistic heads would would implode if you were hitting them. Like if you were yeah. shoot if you were at Oakley. Oh yeah, that's they need good. a new backstop. That's a different thing. Yeah, that the kind of yeah. Well, we I, had this discussion though. It's all about what you can physically manage. We had this discussion on your podcast. You listen to this podcast, you want to hear another drunken rambling bullshit fest. John, <laughs> John, John and I did an episode of Knock On, which is if you're getting into archery, John's podcast is, in my opinion, the best archery podcast in the world. It's the most informative, and it's how John and I became friends. Uh, we became friends because I went to Hoyt. And um, Hoyt, the company that makes these bows, I went there with my family because I was in Salt Lake. And I made I don't like skiing, man. I don't like it. It's fucking boring to me. But I do it because my family <laughs> likes it. They're like, we were going down the hill. We. I'm like, all right, I'll go. I'll go. Fine. I'm like, oh, but please, can we just stop in at Salt Lake City so I can visit the Hoyt factory? I want to check it out. So, uh, And I was in there, and I was talking to Mike Looper. Uh, and Mike Looper, one of the big wigs over at Hoyt, and I was telling him, I go, I listen to that John Dudley's podcast all the time. That podcast's amazing. I'm like, it's so informative. And then Looper told you, and then somehow or another he connected us, and next thing you know, you're giving me some coaching. Well, and Well, here, it's funny because Mike's a practical joker. He's always, like, he'll always call, and then he starts out with, like, hi, is Mr. Dudley there? Like, he always does <laughs> these different voices. And he he's always playing jokes. Well, anyway, we Sharon and I went to Hoyt like an, two hours after you were there. Oh, that's funny. That's and, hilarious. And um, we pull in, and then Mike's like, dude, Rogan was just here, and he loves your podcast. And I'm like thinking, here we go. <laughs> and he's like, no, seriously. And I'm like, oh, yeah, does he? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, he's in town. He's skiing, and he's going to go over to the Western Expo. And I said, well... That's what we're here for. We're going to be over at the Western Expo because we were we actually went for Felt Bikes because Felt put their bikes at the Western Expo and they said, "Will you come here and like give a testimony that you use these things?" Well, explain what a Felt bike is. We've been using them all week. They're awesome. They're they're mountain bikes that have like assisted. It's e it's an e bike. Mm. So it's um it has a pedal assist. It has a Bosch motor on it. And as long as you're pedaling, you can. It has a battery that you charge, and as long as you're pedaling, you can. You have four settings, and you can use a setting where it actually assists you. And it, the way I describe it is, each one of those numbers, whether it's eco, sport, tour, um, turbo, turbo, whichever one it is. It's almost like that is equal to one other person being on your bike. I want to just tell you something. I never use those things with anything less than turbo. Whatever it was set at, <laughs> I was like, turbo, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and they're unbelievable. As it's long really as you're fun. turning the pedals, it's effortless they'll, they'll go se- yeah, they'll go 17 miles an hour, which I think is what, by law, anything that goes over that, I think it it gets kind of classified as a different type of... It's not eligible to go on um, non-motorized trails Mm -hmm. so you can use these bikes on non-motorized paths like in montana and stuff 
you'd be able to take these like where Green Tree went. You'd be able to take a bike on that same trail. Well, what's important about it is two things. One, you can charge these things with solar power because yep. they're electrical. And two, one of the things that happens in these cold weather hunts is you hike far and wide up mountains. And if you're not, if you didn't do a good job of layering, so like you might have like too much clothes on on the way up there. And you start sweating. Mm-hmm. And then once you get there, then you're hunting. So you're not climbing hills anymore. You're stopped. Now you're and stopped you're and you fucking freeze. And hypothermia is the number one cause of death in the mountains. Is it's it the number really? one. Yes. It kills more people than grizzly bears, rattlesnakes, mountain lions. People fucking freeze to death. And when, when you're up there and you sweat, and you especially if you're wearing cotton, one of the biggest improvements that people figured out was merino wool because if you wear merino wool there's something about the natural fibers in in wool that allow you to stay warm it retains this is heat wool. is it yeah this is the under armor shirt mm-hmm. well um first light has an awesome uh merino wool selection and i know kuyu has a lot of merino wool and and under armor which what i'm wearing right now they have a bunch of merino wool stuff too yeah they've got a ton of different styles yeah merino wool is like it's a it's big with the hiking crowd and outdoorsmen and backpackers and stuff wool has an amazing characteristics there's a lot of cool stories about wool people that were on like plane crashes or shipwrecks and the only ones that survived at sea were the ones that had wool everyone else would die of hypothermia Mm. when we um i was with a company that did some merino wool started a line of merino wool so we brought in a lot of specialists from new zealand that actually showed us the different kinds of merino wool and stuff and then that's when you started to learn a lot about the stories of merino wool and a lot of there's a ton of survivor stories with people that would wear wool versus trying to wear other type of synthetics and like you know obviously that was an extreme case um so it was pretty interesting that's fascinating you know another thing about it is it it for whatever reason it doesn't stink yeah like i've been wearing wool socks i always wear wool socks um, when I would do any t- type of hunting or hiking or anything where I know my feet are going to be sweaty, it makes such a big difference. You take off your socks, it doesn't even smell like you're warm. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Whereas if I wear cotton socks, it smells like someone died in my shoes. <laughs> it smells like there's a goddamn eco-tastrophe going on inside my Nikes. It's it's horrible. The smell. Like if you work out all day and you keep your, your, your socks on, they just sweat and then fester and the bacteria grows there's some natural antimicrobial properties of uh of merino wool it's awesome stuff very awesome so felt bikes get back uh, to great western yeah so looper tells me that you're that you like the podcast and he could tell by my face i figured this was another one of the mike looper pranks so i was like okay and i said well I said, if he wants to hook up, then, you know, then connect us or whatever. So we're back at the hotel. And Sharon and I, we went and checked in. We're there maybe two hours. And Mike texts me. He says, Joe and Cam are in the Mountain Ops booth right now um, doing a podcast. Go by there and um, say hi to him. And I'm like, oh, really? And he said, yeah. And I'm like, okay. So I I literally hung up with him, and I told Sharon, I'm like, 
Yeah, I'm not going over there. I said, <laughs> I'll guarantee you they're doing a podcast, and I'm going to go over there and be like, hey, Joe, Mike told me that you wanted to meet me. And then you'd be like, who the F are you? <laughs> <laughs> so I just like, Mike's like, did you did you connect with them? I said, no. And he's like, why not? And I said, I, well, I, told, I didn't believe you. So he was crying wolf too many times, see? And I didn't take him serious when he was telling the truth. But then you called me out on Twitter, which I wasn't really a Twitter guy. You kind of, I think you sent me something or you said something and then. I think I just said how much your podcast is awesome. Yeah, and I got blasted by all my friends. Oh my God, Joe Rogan's like talking about your podcast. So, well, it's just very rare that someone specializes in something to the extreme that you do with archery where you don't even like. When I do a podcast, like in this podcast is a perfect example. Like many times during this podcast, I've had to say, "Well, for people who don't know, that means this," or for people who haven't heard that, that's a, you don't even bother doing that. You start talking about AC tens and Should. different cams. And <laughs> Should I ZXK? No, you shouldn't because what you're doing is you're you are it's a hardcore archery podcast, and it is. You know, catch up if you can, stay with it if you can, but you go deep, deep, deep into all of the variables of archery. And for me, it makes me understand and appreciate. I still, is, I mean, I've been shooting bows for a few years now and really hardcore for most of the time, like really into it most of the time. Still, there's a lot of shit you talk about. Where I don't know what the fuck you're saying <laughs> because it's just it's so it's so detailed. There's so much going on, but also because you were a very successful target archer, which is you know of course you see in you know you see it on television in the Olympics and all this different stuff. Target archery, which is almost as specialized and weird in its own way as hunting, as bow hunting is. Yep. Yeah. Target archery's you learn so much about the sport, one. You really start to have to learn your equipment. And then for me, I really learned a whole new aspect of just competitiveness, preparation, diet, how to travel, how to travel smart. Um, because it's it's a huge investment to go to tournaments across the world. You know, you look at some of those over there, you know, from Poland or Sweden or... What was the biggest tournament that you won? Mm, I don't know. They're all different. They're all different. I don't think any one of them... I always liked winning the team rounds the best. I always loved shooting um, team rounds. I got really pumped up with that. I don't really remember very many of them. I do remember, but I don't. See what's what I was trying to get to, and this segues into it. I started shooting competitive archery to be a better bow hunter. That's the only reason I competed because I was in the same mental state as what you were. Of okay, if I'm going to go out and do this, I want to know that if I've got one shot, I want to make sure that it's right. Because when I started, I was never taught properly. I was just we hunted a lot for our family's food. I was down in Mississippi when I was younger is where I lived and I made a lot of mistakes I would miss a lot and just you know I was self-taught I think I was with a lot of people that just like you know they'd pick it up and just try to do it and you spend a lot of time sitting and waiting for an opportunity and then when you blow it it's extremely frustrating 
So I just decided to start shooting competitive archery, and I, I ended up shooting one little tournament, and then all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, this is what's like going to make me a really good bow hunter. If Because when I shot my first tournament, it made me realize how bad of a hunter I was from a point of being able to make a shot. So I'm like, I have to get better at this because if I'm going to be hunting and I'm going to be spending that much time for an opportunity, I have to be able to seize the moment. Mm. So, and the reason I left the the U.S. team was because that year um, when they posted the schedule, the World Cup final was at the end of September. And so I knew that September would be training and then we'd have to fly mid-September so if I wasn't willing to commit to go to the World Cup final, then I wasn't I couldn't stay on the team. So I that was elk season. <laughs> I mean, and that's actually what I said. I just told him I said, "Listen, I don't I do not shoot tournaments between September and December. That's it." And they, I said, I'm, I won't be doing that tournament if that's what it is. And then they just said, well, you're not going to be able to stay on the team. And I just said, okay. And that was it. They don't get it. They, they never heard it. And yeah. you see that thousand-pound forest horse with swords <laughs> coming out of its head running over the top of the hill. Until you've seen a, a bugling elk in the rut just foaming at the mouth and jizzing all over himself literally jizzing all over himself yeah i mean and this massive majestic beast that looks like it's like in the lord of the rings or something i mean it really is there was a someone put something up on twitter and i thought it was really interesting because it was from the perspective of uh someone who's a complete non-hunter and it was uh it was just a bugling elk screaming and they were like the most insane sounds that elk make when they bugle. And the comments were like, "Whoa, this thing is like some mythical beast." Because like somebody caught a really cool, like you know, elk like people they have different voices. Yeah. And some elk have just badass voices. Yeah. Especially yep. those herd bulls. Like the way elk works, folks. If you don't know, there will be like when I was elk hunting recently uh, last month. Cam and I found this one bull that uh, at the ranch they were calling the sword bull because he had just these crazy long beams growing out of uh, the side of his head. It was like a really odd – sometimes you get odd-shaped beams that grow out of these animals' heads. And he was the stud of the ranch. And there was like – he had at least 12 chicks with him, 12 female cows. And that's a pretty small – Following him everywhere. That's but, a pretty small harem. Well, for you know a herd bull, I guess. But it was watching watching all those little satellite bulls hang around this guy. There's like a few like, hey girls, uh, I'm pretty cool too. He's like, shut up! And yeah. Then, and they, 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 he would run them off. Was he a groaner? He was a screamer. Was, <laughs> <laughs> that sound that they make, but. Yeah, I know it. Watching Some of them, people, once they get blown out, they just get to the point where they're like, it's, just, it's like a bullfrog, like a real old one. They can't really bugle anymore, so they're just like, <laughs> and it sounds terrible. <laughs> but you know, they're called, you know, everyone calls them like groaners. Mm. And um, if you're an elk hunter, when you hear a real 
blown out bugle like that, you know it's probably a super old bull. Have you ever seen an Irish elk? No, what is that? You haven't? No, what is They're it? They're extinct now. Check this out, dude. You have to Google this. An when Irish did they go elk. Um, right here. When These did they go used extinct? to roll roam the earth right here. Whoa. Oh my god. They were they were awesome. Look at that thing. Is it awesome or what? It looks like a combination of a stag and an elk. But they're way more massive. They're they're still finding some. Look at that thing. Whoa! It's like a moose thing. It's yeah. It's an Irish elk. You need to look them up. They're amazing. When did they die off? Um, I think it's a twentieth century. No kidding. Wow. Let's see. Wait. No. Let's look at it right here. Most remains of Irish elk date between 11750 mm, before so, present. So definitely not the 20th century. <laughs> I wonder why they died off. That's interesting. I don't know. There was an enormous um, eagle that used to live in New Zealand. Um, God, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, Google enormous eagle in New Zealand. <laughs> God, I'm trying to remember. Enormous eagle. eagle, New Zealand. Because they'll give you a harpy eagle, which is, which is the uh, the biggest uh, eagle that exists today. You know, you can just go like that and then like that. Oh, you hit that down, but host eagle. That's it. That was the biggest eagle ever, and they were so big they would eat people. <laughs> what? Five hundred ten pounds. Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, they had a 10-foot wingspan. Look at that freaking thing. Dude, 510-pound eagle with a 10-foot wingspan. Hello. That's straight out of Harry Potter, <clears throat> dude. Yeah, amazing. And uh, they were so big and so powerful. And New Zealand, um, if you don't know, does not have a lot of indigenous mammals. New Zealand was a, a really... Shut Dang, off from the rest of the world. Yeah, it's thing. called H A A S T Eagle. It was uh, new, and they, I believe they went extinct in the 1400s. Is that what it says? What does it say? When it, when it, yeah, 1400. And the reason why they went extinct, uh, they were hunted to extinction by the first Maori, but that is a little bit controversial. They, they Some people think that it wasn't necessarily that, but that the Maori uh, ate everything that they ate and they didn't have any food left. But there were a lot of accounts by the Maori of them eating people. Oh my God! Look at the size of this Irish elk. <laughs> See, you're not appreciating it. I've seen a, I've seen an actual one that's in a museum. So that says two point ten meters tall to the bottom of the to the antler. bottom of the the bottom, like before the face. Yeah. Why do the, they measure there? Why don't they measure the top of his know. head? So that's way bigger than a, a regular elk. Way bigger. Oh my god! Way bigger. That looks like it's several thousand pounds. Look at that picture of these people next to it. Exactly. <gasps> oh my god! Oh my god, folks! What it looks like is a bull with long legs and like a moose on steroids antlers. Wow! Irish elk. Aren't they cool? See, They're fascinating. Fuck to bringing me. back woolly mammoths. They need to bring back that thing and do it on New Zealand so you can hunt it. <laughs> Make it, you know, that's another, like in New Zealand, it's kind of weird because they don't have uh, hunting tags or seasons for most of their animals. You just go there and fucking go crazy and shoot everything because they have no predators. 
So they have all they have these undulates. It. Yeah, they have all these undulates, all these animals that exist there. And uh-huh. unfortunately, that's like an amazing animal. Unfortunately, a lot of the um, that the animals in New Zealand are also in these high fence operations. So, like, you'll go over there, and you know there'll be uh, you know a few hundred acres or a few thousand Check acres, depending on where you're at. In there. It's like an What's old that? drawing. So shot an, an arrow Irish in it. Elk. These like people chasing it down with their shitty arrows. <laughs> they barely penetrate. Look, they they uh, backstrapped them. Backstrap. Yeah, look look where they hit them. I know. Wow. Terrible picturing. Even the drawing sucks. They didn't even know how to do archery even with a drawing. At least put it in the right spot. <laughs> you missed, dude. You for, missed. For all the haters out there about this hunting podcast, yeah. we historically have we thoroughly enjoyed our what we've been eating. Oh yeah, man. God, so good. Man, we made a had, few posts on the. On, yeah, uh, we've had we've had elk tenderloins. Mm. Um, I've talked to you about hog hunting. I'm a big advocate of. I love shooting hogs. I love shooting gators. Um, we had a ridiculously good pork shoulder today. Incredible. That was your friend Preston made it. Preston made it. Incredible. Dynamite. He, how many hours did he cook it for? Slow cooked it for? 17? Something, something crazy. I mean, it was falling apart as you stick a fork into it. But, yeah, we, uh, we've been eating wild game. Amazing wild game. I think wild pig hunting is one thing that almost everybody wants to do. Like even Bill Burr, my friend Bill, who's never expressed any interest in hunting, I give him elk whenever he comes and does yep. my podcast. Like he came last week and uh, I gave him a bunch of uh, elk, and uh, he loves meat. He eats meat. He goes, "Yeah, I'd go wild pig hunting." I go, "Really?" He goes, "Yeah, you want to take me wild pig hunting?" I'm, "Fuck yeah, dude, let's do it." So I'm gonna take a pig hunting. Pig hunting is the one. Like even my agent. My agent is the she's the nicest lady. Shout out to Stacy. She's a sweetheart and she loves animals. She loves dogs. She rescues dogs. She loves cats. She loves all animals. And when she finds out that I hunt, she's like, "Oh, I don't know how I feel about that." I go, "But you eat meat." She goes, "I know." She goes, "You should hunt pigs." I go, "Watch." She goes, "Cause they're ugly." I'm like, "What?" That's what Sharon started out with. Sharon, my wife is from England, and she started out. Um, she started out having no interest in hunting herself, but then when she started to realize just how many deer there were, um, she was like, "We like this is a necessity." Because, yeah, in Iowa yep, for sure. Well, and we were in Wisconsin at, at the time, and then she really wanted to do it, but like you, she said, "I I don't want to go unless I know I'm totally proficient." So she shot for a long time first, learned the proper way, shot. And then she said, you know, from the hunting aspect, I think if I'm going to, like, actually hunt, I think I want to start with something, like, maybe ugly, like a like a Russian hog or something, like a Russian boar. <laughs> because, like, those those boars are, they're, they overrun certain parts of Florida, like on those sod farmers. We do a lot of hunting on sod farms, and... Um, we're down there with Osceola Outfitters, Hoppy Kempfer is his name. And it's it's amazing how good the pig hunting is, but it's also equally amazing at how much destruction they do to his place. I mean, he runs hunts 360 days a year, and there's people shooting them every single day, and there's still just tons. It's tons. crazy. Well, 
you when you talk about how they breed, that's where it gets so shocking when you find out that they can get to full maturity in six months. They have a litter, and I believe they're only pregnant for six weeks. And then they shit out the kids. <laughs> get out of there. And then six months later, they're having kids of their own. And they can do that cycle, I think, three times a year. Yep. And they can have a ton. I mean, they can have a ton of babies. And they just keep multiplying over and over and over and over again. And unless someone comes along and shoots them... There's not enough mountain lions in the world to keep a, no. a cap on that. They just they're not going to be able to do it. Pigs are very smart too. They're super smart. They're super turned turned in tuned in. Their eyesight sucks, but their scent their sense of smell is incredible. Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, they smell you a fucking mile away and like see you, dude, and they yeah. just start running head over the hill. They do so much damage to fences too. Mm-hmm. I think they. Someone told me something like if if they can get their snout into something, then they can get their whole body through it. Like they have that much will. So if they can get the snout like into the fence or under the fence, they will be through it. Jesus. Yeah, they they do some crazy they damage. They find a way. They find a way. For well, sure. they're so fucked up that it's the only animal in North America that allow you to hunt from a helicopter with a machine gun. Where in Texas, they're like, "Go ahead." <laughs> but <laughs> that is so Texas. They, uh, you know, we have a hog problem. What should we do? Man, you know what I've been thinking? <laughs> I've been thinking about helicopters, man. Helicopters and machine guns. Like, what the fuck are you? Are you who let this guy in the meeting? <laughs> man, we got to curb these things. I'm thinking nuclear weapons. No! No, no. no. Okay, okay. How about helicopters? All right. Helicopters. Yep. Helicopters and machine guns over nuclear weapon. All, all agreed? Okay, next <laughs> next item on the agenda. So they just they have this thing called Hella Hunters, and there's an episode of Pigman. There's a show called Pigman, and Pigman just goes around shooting pigs all the time. He got the name Pigman, and he lives in Texas where, again, it has to be done. Texas has millions of pigs. They have so many pigs that Texas opened up a new road. I forget where the road was. They opened up a new road, and they had 40 car accidents the first night from people slamming into <laughs> pigs. That's when you know you got a fucked up problem. So well, this, I told you. Oh, go ahead. Oh, because this episode of Pigman is called Apocalypse Now. <laughs> and Apocalypse Now is a Ted Nugent and Pigman. You can watch it on YouTube. They get in a fucking helicopter and they shoot 250 pigs in a day. And they're flying around and they're just duck, 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 like a goddamn platoon movie. <laughs> duck, 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 duck. And they're, they're hitting these pigs in the head as the pigs are running full clip and the pigs are flipping head over feet. I mean, it's fucked up. And you know they're not eating those things. Half of them are just going to leave there. No one cares. They just have to do something try to curb that population now if you did that with lambs or, oh my gosh or with deer you know or any any normal farm animal we have a hierarchy of animals that will allow people to do that too yeah it is funny that people have that they've got that one thing whereas as soon as you start shooting a deer they're not cool with it. Or the big one is bears, right? Yeah, bears, bears are certainly the biggest. That's the big one. Yeah. But again, I mean, bears, it's the same thing. If you go where the rivets live up in Alberta, 
Man, black bears are everywhere. They have so many bears. Anywhere in Canada, they are. There's a lot of them. Tons, tons of bears. And the only thing stopping their population growth is hunters. Yep, that's it. But um, so back to this Apocalypse Now thing. The um, the like I said, the episodes are on Twitter. But if you need to, just it gives you also like a good sort. I don't think you'll ever get it unless you see. Giant packs of pigs. What do they call a litter? What do they call? No. What do they call a pack of pigs? I think pack of pigs sounds pretty good. Pack? You know what they call aborigines? Um, uh, You know, Adam Greentree, our buddy from Australia, he uh, he owns a a mining company. He owns a fencing company. He does mining, right? He's involved in a lot of mining operations. I don't know that part. Okay. But anyway, he, uh, he employs a bunch of aborigines. And so uh, he got to know them really well, and you know, he's, he told me some fascinating, fascinating stories about their culture and their history. It's really interesting stuff. But one of the things that's crazy is when you call uh, a group, you don't call them a tribe; they call themselves a mob. Is that just their terminology yeah. for it? Yeah, the terminology is a mob, like an Aborigine mob. Obviously, it's just a different meaning than the mob. Yeah, either. not like the mob, like in the mafia. Like, that's just a pack, you know, um, a tribe, a group, a clan. You know, they call themselves a mob. And he said, you'll have, they'll have one language and that they speak. And then 10 miles over, there's another group that has a totally different language and they can't speak each other's language. Kind of like England. Is England like that? Like the dialects? Oh, but they're still speaking <laughs> yeah. English. Yeah. These people are not speaking. Mean, I think in Africa, it's like that too. There's a lot of, you go from tribe to tribe and it's, Almost like a completely different, yeah, different dialect. Totally. Well, that's probably where the whole Tower of Babel story came from, from the Bible. You know, back when there was not that much travel, when you had to ride a fucking horse to get somewhere. If was, you're lucky, if you're lucky, and it had one. So it's probably if you once you crossed over a mountain range or something like that, those fuckers over there they were invented speaking a totally whole new language. Yeah, like look at Europe. You know, you could just travel a short distance. And you're dealing with completely different languages, totally different culture. Well, yeah, I was in Sweden um, doing some coaching with the, their national team. And, you know, you can be in Italy or you can be in France or you can be in Germany in no time. Like and that. It, thup, thup, thup. Yeah. And, I mean, it's completely different culture, completely different language, completely different people, different food different history it's amazing and it's all smaller than a segment of the united states and that's with vehicles yeah so i mean imagine before before yeah you've been in some of the mountains we've elk hunted in would you really want to have to go two or three mountain ranges over just because if you had a cool little house and some running water and a little place to dump and yeah all that stuff you'd be kind of happy right there yeah Hey, I think I'm just going to go walk over here and risk hypothermia because I don't have merino wool on. <laughs> how how long did you travel uh, for archery? I did just, I think, I think I've done um, three passports. Three full passports. Well, with extensions. 1.3 million miles I've got flying. Wow. All shooting bows and arrows. Shooting a bow. You know what's crazy is um, three years ago, Sharon and I went to, and Harry, our son, went to um, Mexico for a vacation. Mm-hmm. 
And it was the first time I'd ever traveled without a bow case. Whoa. That was Puerto Vallarta? Yep. That's crazy. Yep. We were down there at the same time. Yep. That was our, Total that was our return. Yeah, no kidding. That was weird. I was literally getting I was getting on the plane to go home and you were you were just getting there the same exact time. Fucking love Puerto Vallarta. Oh. So awesome. I'm going back, Jack. Yeah, that's a good spot. <laughs> it's a good spot. Right when this rut's done, I'm going to... Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be sitting in a tree for 13 hours a day for about another 21 days. And when that's done, I'm going to sleep for about three days. I'm going to shave this face. And I'm going to sling some onyx kettlebells around like three or four hours a day. You got a beach body? Yep, and I'm gonna get my, <laughs> I'm gonna get my PV body going, but uh, no. Since I met you, you got me hooked on on it, and it's totally changed me. Because when I did um, in September, well, I start hunting in October 24 or August 24th is when I start. I start in Alberta, and then I work my way through s- several states and a lot of different tags. But I went 30 days with. I, all I ate was one meal a day. I'd eat a meal at night. But um, I lived off the TPC packs. I've, I would pack them all in a big one-gallon Ziploc bag. I'd do it, the TPC packs for morning and evening. Um, I would do three Alpha Brains that I'd put in three different bottles of water throughout the day. One of the um, Total Gut Health. And then I would do two of the Omega bars and two of the Tonka bars. And I lived off that for 30 days. That's and, all you ate? Yeah. And, the, I, and I was... You aver- ate that for dinner too? That was your dinner? I would normally cook some kind of a dinner at night. So, but we that was what you, you were eating during the day? Yep. Why did you limit yourself to so little food? Because I was always in my backpack. Oh, I see. And it so was like you- super portable. It was easy to travel right. with. So you were, you were doing the hardcore backpack hunting? Not, I mean, it wasn't truly hardcore. It was just, if I think if you're hunting, I like to try to get as much rest as I can because if you shoot something, you're up all night, and then a lot of t- a lot of these places I have multiple tags, so I'm right back at it the next day. Like in Alberta, I was there. I think I was there nine days, and I think I did 87 miles on my little Garmin is what I covered on yeah. on feet. So, um, it's, you burn a lot of calories and then, you know, obviously Montana is way more rugged than Alberta. I mean, it was some of that stuff. I bet I was, I did half the distance, but I feel like I was probably having to put twice the effort in, but it was, it totally sustained me when that would, you know, that's pretty hard beating on you. You know, just living off out of a backpack, really, and limited sleep and being in different places. I wish I would have had that when I competed. Well, keeping those neurotransmitters at good levels is so important. It's one of the reasons why if I fly somewhere and I land, I do two things. Two things, like, right away. One, Unless I, I get there at night and I'm tired, I just go to sleep. But one of the first things I do is I do a 30-minute workout. You don't even have to kill yourself. I just I, I minimum of thirty minutes. Yep. I like to go to the gym and just get everything going. Just fire up those engines, blow out those pipes, 
get that blood flowing. And if I don't do that, I don't feel as good. It takes me a day or two to adjust. But if I do do that, and then I have a nice salad or a healthy meal afterwards, I feel great. The other thing is alpha brain. It's so important to me to get those those levels of your neurotransmitters high because it's one of the things that affects you the most about jet lag and travel. Yeah. Your the sleep patterns off and your brain chemistry's all funky. I take new mood and I take um, alpha brain. New mood's great, but alpha brain is imperative. I, I have to take it. If I do a UFC I have to take it. You know, anytime where I'm, my mind has to be fired up for long periods yeah, of time. Yeah, I do notice a difference with it. And I, I like the peach one that you put in with water. Mm-hmm. Um, because I I probably, I don't enjoy drinking water, but I drink a lot throughout the day. So having a few of those that I can do throughout the day with some flavoring. Yeah, it tastes it, good. It, it doesn't was, have any sugar. Yeah. yeah. See, I like a little taste, but I don't like sugar. Sugar would put me off if I tasted it. But, yeah, they've been awesome. And the new moods, I normally take four of those at night with that TPC night pack. And I get... Does that fuck with your dreams? I love it. I get get into some crazy dream modes. Yeah. Alpha Brain does that, too. Alpha Brain gives me these bizarre lucid dreams. That's what you told me. So I'm like on... I do a TPC night... (laughs) I do. Well, I do. I had a TPC night now. I'll take four new moods, but then I'll have one of my alpha brains if I'm at home is when I go to bed. Whoa. I like to, I like to dream because then I at least feel like I'm getting true deep sleep. It sounds like you're having adventures. Like if you're taking that much, (laughs) you must be having, you must be on magical mystery tours every night. A magical mystery tour. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, but I'm glad. I'm glad you got into that. I'm glad you also. Uh, I know you did a lot of work with some of those guys down at the Onnit Academy, and you um, learned a lot of shoulder mobility exercises and shoulder strengthening exercises mm-hmm. that I think could be really critical for archers. You know, archery is uh, as much as it is about technique, and as much as it is about proper form and you know, proper execution. There's also muscle involved. There's also strength involved. And obviously, it's an athletic endeavor. You're dealing with your body. And um, I think it's really cool that you're developing like a program of specific things that you feel would benefit archers, give them shoulder stability, range of motion. Um, I know we did some of them yesterday with uh, the club bells, which I find uh, really beneficial for a lot of things. Um, Club bells and... um, one of the things I, I like about them is that they they're really awkward. It's a it, what it is. It's, it's it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a club. It's an iron club. So there's this long handle, and then there's a lot of mass at the top of the handle, and it's, it's not like a, a lot stubby of stubby baseball bat made yeah. out of cast iron. Is dang near what it would mm-hmm. be a good description. Yeah, and I have some longer, heavier ones at home um, that I, I've really gotten into. And by I say when I say heavier, I'm only talking about 35 pounds. Yeah. That's all you need. I mean, you don't need that much. We're, we're doing these exercises called shield casts. It's so difficult to do, to take a 35-pound club with all the weight at the end of it so it's weird leverage, yep. and then control it, swinging it over the top of your head and then bringing it down with full control of it and pausing it in front of you. 
I think that's incredible for archery. And I think it would be incredibly beneficial for stability of your front arm. And having the strength to be able to hold your front arm there without any strain or any like shaking or weirdness. Yeah, just sca- your scapula stability is a is a huge weakness point in archery. When archers break down, it's normally because of super weak scapular stability muscles. And there's a lot of different movements that they taught me at the Honor Academy because I really wanted to go there to one, I think since you showed me some of the first moves you showed me with just kettlebells, I realized this is stuff that I this is stuff I'd use every day. I mean, you've been here four days. How often am I picking up that felt bike, putting it in the back of my truck, Quite a bit. slinging, you know, picking up, sl- slinging feed sacks or whatever? I mean, that's like true, useful strength and mobility and flexibility. And so all these movements teaches that. And I really wanted something that um, one thing. I learned to appreciate when I lived in England with Sharon for a long time was you don't have, some people just don't have the space to have very much workout equipment Mm. with kettlebells and some teams, like some of the teams I work with, especially with some of the smaller countries, they don't have huge budgets, but with kettlebells, they can, that's a minimal investment and it's a minimal space usage too you can take two kettlebells and keep them in a corner it's not like you got um the total gym with chuck norris you know hiding in the corner it's wasting a bunch of space and i really wanted to go and one learn proper technique and learn different movements and then realize okay which ones actually work good for archery or what ones can help archers and my plan was originally we were going to do some videos um, with those guys at the Onnit Academy, specific for some archers, um, but this hunting season has—I've been so busy. I mean, and even right now, I'd like to be able to go, but I'm—I'm I'm in no way having time, just because I'm trying to get my hunts done, trying to finish the TV show, and do all that stuff, and time but it is on the schedule because i think so many people are going to benefit from learning super simple movements that really increase your range like that steel mace i like just because of how much range it teaches you all the way around you Mm -hmm. know you're you're getting so much range in that shoulder joint and you're really having to focus on that scapular stability all the way around and then you even when you come around to the front you know, even though it doesn't look like you're doing much, if you're doing it properly, you're really engaging your core to seat everything down and yeah. to bring everything to center. And so much of being stable as an archer is having a solid platform and a solid base. And that core stability is what where all that radiates from. If the core is is loose or unstable, then Obviously, everything outside of that is going to be the same way. Yeah, and especially when you consider when you do archery, you're pulling with your back and your scapula is involved in in the the drawing of the bow and also in the the making the bow release, the the executing the shot. Another exercise exercise that I think is critical for archers is chin-ups. And I think that um, if like if I could say one piece of equipment, if you could you could only afford one. 
get a chin-up bar. I think chin-up bars are giant, especially a good one that actually comes off the wall. Like if you can invest in one, you have the space and you just, you know, get it mounted on some studs in your house. It's so critical. I think uh, even the hangs. Yes. The hangs is what I was going to say. First of all, hangs are so good for your shoulders. And there's uh, a bunch of articles and videos. You can watch some videos on YouTube by some doctors. I was first turned on to this by Steve Maxwell. He told me about this. There was a doctor, this is a particular doctor. I'm sorry, I forget his name, but I'm sure you could find it really quickly. Uh, and he invented this method of hanging and releasing tension and pressure in the shoulder joint because he thinks that a lot of the pain that people suffer from impacted shoulders is really just a function of our our bodies are designed. We have essentially like ancient primate genetics and ancient primate structure. And one thing primates, almost all of them have in common is they swing from things by their mm. arms. They hang by their arms. They swing by their arms. And that pulling and stretching, stretching and and lengthening of the, the those that soft tissue and those tendons. That's imperative to both st- the stability of the shoulder and the alleviation of pain in the range of motion. I've, I've experienced some really great results with hanging from my shoulders and also from something that I learned from you, which is hanging from a chin-up bar and then with my arms completely extended, just contracting the scapula. So just contracting and I'll hold that for as long as I can and then I'll release again. Yeah, so you're almost hanging to the point where you let your shoulders fully extend to where mm-hmm. you, you know you feel like you know you feel like you're on the verge of letting go of something if you're right. hanging but then in that same position you literally take your shoulder sockets and almost pull them down to right. your armpits so to without speak. bending your arms yeah you don't bend your arms you're not using any bicep and there's a video of John doing it online too you can you could find that what it, do you remember the name of your video? I don't know. It was right after I had shoulder surgery, so I know that I wasn't able to do it really well, which was kind of the point, I think. Yeah. You know, I was having to I just came out of the shoulder surgery, so I was trying to to rebuild that strength. Um I'm trying to see here. But there's a ton of exercises you can do if you can't afford for perfect form in front bow shoulder it's on knock on archery the knock on archery youtube channel but it's the name the if you want to look at it and by the way that's also an awesome channel for instruction you want to learn some stuff about archery and um i i think that might be one of the things i'd seen from you before i ever met you too is uh, a bunch of little instructional videos that you had put out on the proper way to use releases on a bunch of different things that's what I do. I teach. That's what he does, folks. I teach stuff. And uh, I know this sounds crazy, but we're going to end this podcast. Dude, it's only an hour and 45 minutes. Dude, you only did one podcast. Listen, I'll be back. Just relax. If we tag out tomorrow, maybe John and I will do a fight companion. Ooh. How about that, you fucks? Huh? <laughs> so <laughs> that's, uh, that's a big if. I mean, who knows if we tag out. And... um so this one, I'm gonna, uh, I'll email this to young Jamie, and hopefully he'll get this up pronto, and uh, you guys will get it tomorrow. So that's it for now. Um, you can check out John's Instagram page. It's Knock On TV. TV. 
Uh, the YouTube channels, Knock, Knock on, on Archery, and all the episodes are up also of your TV show. Yep. They're That's, all for free on Knock on Archery as well. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. And if you're interested, you're like, man, I need a hobby. Pick up Archery, goddammit. And I wish there was a place near me that was uh, a place that taught. You know, it's it's hard. It's hard to find a good archery school. And, uh, I mean, we were, we were talking about that today, about what archery clubs are like in England or in um, in Europe, is yep. that they're like country clubs. Yeah. Where, you know, people go and, like, the the way people go to play golf, people yep. go to do archery. And, you know, they, they appreciate it as an, a discipline. Yeah, they have memberships and full bars in there. And, and beautiful of, facilities. Yeah, all kinds of cool, cool stuff. Yeah, for sure. Anyway. We're exhausted, folks. We've been doing nothing but waiting all day and getting up early. Yeah, and Joe's trying to have a little R and R here. Yeah, we're we're giving you guys a hour and forty five minutes yes. podcast. But that's it. Our it must, eyes are sagging. It must end now. That's it. Uh, tomorrow we got to drop the hammer. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, next week I'm back to uh, regularly scheduled podcast. I got a podcast with uh, the great Dave Rubin. And I think that is on, um, yeah, that's on Monday. Then Tuesday we're doing the big Election Day End of the World podcast live from the Comedy Store with Doug Stanhope, Bill Burr, Burt Kreischer, a bunch of other people too. Uh, I think Joey Diaz is coming in, uh, Tom Rhodes. Uh, Burt Kreischer's on the podcast on Wednesday. And... Uh, and then the next week, I got a lot, too. Next week, I got Shannon the Cannon, Briggs, let's go, champ. He'll be on uh, the 14th. Yeah, that's right, fuckers. Graham Hancock and Rail No Carlson on the 15th. I got a lot of shit going on, folks. So uh, even though I'm kind of uh, here, I'm here for myself. What about us, man? Sometimes I got to do shit for me. That way, it's more interesting when I do shit for you. <laughs> I'm living life, goddammit. I suggest you do the same. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you folks. And big kiss. Uh, thanks for tuning into the podcast, folks. Thanks to John Dudley for letting me use his equipment. And thanks to Diff Eyewear. Diff Eyewear. Stylish handmade sunglasses. Ridiculously cheap. Made with high end materials. They're awesome. And for each pair, of sunglasses you buy, Diff Eyewear will give a pair of reading glasses to someone in need. Try it, you folks. Do good. Buy smarter. Be Diff. That's what their logo is. That's not me. D-I-F-F. Go to DiffEyewear.com forward slash Rogan right now to get 15% off your purchase. That's D-I-F-F Eyewear.com forward slash Rogan to get 15% off. DiffEyewear.com forward slash Rogan. Yeah, baby. We're also brought to you by Casper. Awesome mattresses, ridiculously low prices, and incredible risk-free trial and return policy. You can try it for 100 days. What more do you want, goddammit? Go to Casper.com forward slash Joe. Use the promo code Joe at checkout. Terms and conditions may apply, but you can save 50 bucks. 50 bucks by going to casper.com forward slash Joe. All right, folks, that's it. We're diggity, diggity done. So, see you next week. Bye. Love ya. 
Hugs. Hugs for you all. <laughs>